Welcome to episode four of Slow Down to Go Fast. I'm Eric Ebert, and today we're going to talk about class, concurrency, closure, and maybe even a few words that don't start with C. Stay tuned. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about the programming concepts and ideas that I've been thinking about and what, uh, what we've been thinking about in my OOP applications class. Um, and in fact, what we've been thinking about is classes. So my students have been getting their introduction to classes in Java. Um, it's, a, it's definitely more sophisticated than what I had them do um, in Python. So what is a class? A class is a representation. It can be a representation of something that you find in the real world or it can be an abstraction. So a class contains what are called attributes. These are the things that you keep track of, such as a ball has a particular diameter or um, Perhaps you're modeling cars, and there's cars with uh, four wheels, or there's trucks with four wheels, or there's trucks with uh, six wheels, eight wheels, so on. So these are all attributes. And then there are methods. There are things that you can do to the objects themselves. For instance, you can fill the car with gas. You can pay for the car. You can do these kinds of things. You can change its tires or what have you. So there is not just a piece of data or pieces of data that you are keeping track of as the attributes. There are actions or there is behavior that you are keeping track of. So reasons to create a class is to model the real world um, or to be able to engage in some kind of abstraction. And <clears throat> sometimes People talk about how a class hierarchy will go crazy or that it um, is unreadable. And there are perhaps instances where programmers have dealt with a kind of PTSD because they've seen a class hierarchy that was um, more like spaghetti. So you want to have classes that human being, a class hierarchy that human beings can understand. And when it comes down to it, human beings can comprehend somewhere between five and nine things at a time. So if you have too many classes going on, one seriously needs to consider what's the structure of what's happening. So I mentioned the ball and the basketball. So a ball has a particular set of attributes. It has a diameter and it has some actions, such as you can bounce it. Um, and then you have basketballs and baseballs and soccer balls and all these kinds of things. So there is a relationship. A basketball is a ball is what's referred to as inheritance. So inheritance is all about being able to have some big abstraction and then being able to have some more specific instances of what's happening. Inheritance. 
So there are three words that go along with object-oriented programming, um, inheritance, polymorphism, and encapsulation. Um, so inheritance is one of these things, is a, a basketball is a ball. This is inheritance. There's another idea. So one of the things that um, my kids have been working on is a pair of dice class. So there was a die class that they had from a discussion that we had in their book. And the die class, I had to modify the die class so that it would have, it could be able to handle inside die instead of just a six-sided die. So the pair of dice class keeps track of, as you'd probably imagine, a pair of dice. So there is an, the attribute in the pair of dice is an array of two die. This is a has a relationship. The pair of dice has a die. This is what's referred to as composition. Um, and it's, a, it's less complicated than inheritance in some sense because people can understand putting boxes inside of boxes a little easier than um, having long lines of abstraction lead to something very, very specific. So classes, this is, this is what we've been thinking about. And um, I'll talk a little bit more about uh, what I've been thinking about um, when it comes to encapsulation and data hiding. Concurrency. So I've always thought concurrency was a really interesting concept. And I remember when I was taking computer science one that the TA we had um, was talking about how he was using threads to um, coordinate some independent tasks in a web. In a web, um, he was he was scraping the web for information. So kind of a web application. Um, this was long before the age of multi-core. So one of the ways that you can accomplish this is via threads. And I've been um, I started reading this book called Seven seven concurrency models in seven weeks. And uh, the first thing it does is talk about some of the interesting, if not crazy, things that can happen if you're not aware of them. Um, you can get into situations where a particular thread hogs all the time in the processor, all the processor time, so you can't actually get the program to finish. Um, you can also end up in deadlocks where traffic doesn't move. And so the coordination part is really important. So it isn't always intuitive and you can't always figure out when two things are going to happen unless you coordinate properly. And so the first examples that they give are having a couple of different threads running and um, each thread having a couple of print statements and every time you run the program, the print statements come out in a different order. One of the other things that can happen is um, the compiler will optimize code for your particular system or your particular operating system. And as it does that, it may very well reorder the code that you've written. Um, this is not what you would like to have happen as a programmer, um, but you have to live with it because 
compilers optimize code. It's what they do. It's what they've built to, been built to do. And as it optimize, as the compiler optimizes that code, sometimes it will reorder things or shuffle things around a little bit. Um, so as you can imagine, if you're trying to coordinate different tasks and attempting to have them run concurrently, this can run into problems. So I shared some of this with my OOP class, even though it is a topic long and afar from anything we're going to cover this year. Um, I think a couple of things are important as a teacher. One, I think it's important for students to know that you're still learning things. Um, a part of imparting this idea of being a lifelong learner is about uh, talking about the things that you're learning or talking about the things that you're struggling with. Um, I think there it helps students know that you can feel that struggle of what it means to learn something for the first time. I think it also keeps a teacher from falling into the trap of the curse of knowledge. If you are continuing to learn things, if you are continually trying to work with things that are difficult or work with things that are new but interesting, you are able to continue having that empathy of the struggle and the difficulty that can happen when a student is trying to learn something for the first time. And I think that's important. I think it's important to realize that you can do it quickly as a teacher or you can immediately see how to do a particular homework assignment partially because of experience, partially because you're perhaps more mature um, and other factors as well. But we have to remind ourselves that when students are struggling through something that we thought would be easier, that perhaps we thought it would be easier because of our own biases. Um, I've also been learning the programming language closure recently. Um, over the last couple of years, I've had a real interest in learning functional programming. And I started out by learning Haskell. And actually, I teach the information security course uh, with the language Haskell. Uh, there's a couple of reasons that I chose that. One, I wanted students to be able to get exposure to a compiled language without having to learn C or C++ because there's a lot of overhead to learning C and C++. So perhaps you're thinking there's a lot of overhead to learning functional programming. I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that, um, but I also think when it's scaffold properly that it's doable and it also makes students think about recursion um, things like list comprehensions and uh, tail recursion because you have no loops. There are no for loops to um, run around. That doesn't mean you can't accomplish iteration. Sometimes when people hear Haskell has no for loops, they immediately assume you can't accomplish iteration, and that's false. There are ways to accomplish iteration, but you have to think about them differently. Um, so Clojure implements a number of things about functional programming and um, the functional programming languages like Clojure and Haskell have also 
implemented a lot of things around concurrency. So one of the reasons that I picked this up or am picking up the um, closure programming language is due to my interest in concurrency. Um, both closure and Haskell have a REPL, R-E-P-L. So it stands for read, evaluate, print, loop. So the REPL enclosure and the REPL and Haskell um, are a little different. So maybe I should talk about what a REPL is. So with a compiled language, you have to, if you make changes, you have to recompile it, see if it compiles, and then um, if it doesn't compile, you have to go back and figure out what your mistakes are. And one of the things with functional programming is that you break things up into little small chunks and you put together the full broom program out of these small bricks. So you want to be able to test small things at a time. And so the REPL almost gives you this sandbox that you can go play in. There's a couple of things that are different, like I mentioned, with the closure REPL versus the Haskell REPL. Um, the closure REPL, you can put an entire program in there and it will run. With Haskell, you can load up programs, certainly, but you can't be guaranteed that when you're running it in the Haskell REPL that it's going to run exactly the same way as it'll run when you compile it. With Clojure, the REPL has been made so that it will do exactly what is happening um, once you turn it into bytecode. So Clojure runs on top of the JVM, so it compiles your Clojure code into, into bytecode. Um, one of the places where I ran into this was um, trying to use a print and, and use a put string instead of a put string line. With put string in Haskell, you have to flush the buffer before it will go to the output. So if you run it in the REPL, it looks like it works perfectly fine. It works the way you would think it would. The way that I found out that you had to flush the buffer to make it go out to the output was I compiled the code. It compiled perfectly fine, but it wouldn't do anything. So good, bad, or indifferent, I don't know that I make a judgment. I enjoy the Haskell REPL for what it does and what it allows me to do um, and the things that it allows me to test. It's like all tools in that you learn what they're capable of, what they're not capable of, what their perhaps inconsistencies are, or the things that you say to yourself, I wish that was different. Um, and you work within those constraints or you work with the way that the tool works. It's just the way it is. But REPLs are awfully nice and um, I've, I've enjoyed using them and I've enjoyed learning functional programming concepts and I've, learned, I've enjoyed learning both of these languages. 
Um, if you're into closure or if you're thinking about learning closure, there is a um, there is an add-on to Eclipse called Clockwise that I would highly suggest. Um, there is another called um, Line Again, and I've got both clock. I think when you install Clockwise, that there's some Line Again that comes along with that. Um, they both give you ways to manage your project, uh, work with code, have a REPL open, and do all the things that you want to do to learn closure. So um, I've had a lot of fun doing it, and um, I will continue to kind of give you some updates as I learn more. Um, so I mentioned that I wanted to talk a little more about encapsulation. So I've been reading the book. Code Complete by Steve McConnell. Um, there was a software design course that I was supposed to have read parts of this book for, um, gosh, it's probably been 10, 15 years ago that I took this course. Um, you know, as a student first learning some things, you can't necessarily appreciate why the teacher has you reading this book. Um, Certainly, as I am trying to manage software projects for students, um, and it's been a number of years since I've worked with some of the concepts, they're kind of back there in the back of my head somewhere, such as encapsulation or data hiding or why it is that you want to do some of the things with classes. So I've been reading this book to uh, remind myself of some of those things. Um, there's a great quote in there, and I'm uh, kind of paraphrasing. He says, programming is not like the CIA. You don't get credit for being sneaky. This is true. When you're trying to be sneaky as a programmer, you are making life hard for others. It is almost a guarantee. When I was taking computer science one, the saying was, just because you can doesn't mean you should. So you do not get credit for being sneaky. However, you do get credit for playing need to know. So encapsulation, one of the things around that concept is data hiding. In Python, everything is assumed to be public. And the situation is that adults are going to act like adults and they're going to do the kinds of things that you should be doing. In Java, kind of the opposite approach has been taken. Everything is assumed to be private. And if you want to get access to it, you need to go through the interface or you need some way to interface this private data. You don't want things changing. And one of the problems that programmers have had is the consequences of a function changing something in memory. When you pass things around by reference, you are changing a list in place, for instance. So functions have side effects where they change things in memory. And sometimes these side effects are unexpected. With the functional programming concept, in Haskell, everything is immutable. You cannot change it. 
once you've assigned y to be 5, y is 5 for the rest of its life. So there you have pure functions. There are no side effects. So again, this is one of the things that make your brain think a little bit di differently um, in functional programming than in some of the imperative languages. So that's kind of some of the fun that I've been having around programming and teaching and the things that I've been thinking about. And um, as I learn more, I will update you and uh, let you know where this journey goes. So next week, I think I'm going to talk about leadership and kind of how my views of, on leadership have changed over the last couple of years or how I view some things differently. So what is leadership anyway? That's my question for this week. I'll, I hope you have a great week and I will talk to you later.